0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. No country, not even the Soviet Union at its peak, has spied in such a comprehensive way as China. The head of MI6, Richard Moore, warned in December 2021 that the Chinese intelligence services are highly capable and continue to conduct large-scale espionage operations against the UK and our allies. At the same time, the American CIA has made no secret of its intention to carry out massive intelligence gathering within China, and its boss, William Burns, went to China in the summer of 2023. But how effective are these vast spy networks? Do they manage to penetrate deeply into the secrets of their rivals? And who can hold the spies accountable for their actions? I'm pleased to welcome back as our guest on the podcast today, an expert on security, defence and intelligence, who's particularly well-placed to grapple with such questions. Jonathan Barcher-Miller is a senior fellow at the MacDonald-Laurier Institute, and he joins us on the line from Ottawa in Canada. Jonathan, thanks very much for joining us again on China in Context.
1: Thanks a lot, Duncan. It's a pleasure to be on again.
0: Now, it's clear that both the United States and China have vast intelligence networks focused on the other country. The US also shares its intelligence with some of its allies. Can you start by talking to us about the scale of these operations and their purpose?
1: Well, sure. Uh, Thanks again, Duncan, for having me on uh, this very important topic. Um, So let me start off sort of at the general strategic level. So uh, the scale of these operations often um, relates to the resources of the states involved. So uh, you referred at at the onset to the United States, obviously, as one of the largest uh, intelligence actors and one of the largest um, powers in the world. Uh, And China, which has grown very, very quickly, especially over the past 20 years economically, And with that economic growth uh, has been a growth in their intelligence uh, capacity and operations so that's not to say that china for example uh, 30 years ago or 40 years ago did not have uh, intelligence ambitions intelligence interests and and indeed intelligence operations but what i'm trying to say at the the forefront is that your resources economically um, help in many ways uh, the scale and the scope of operations that you can conduct and I think China is a very good sort of litmus case of this. Why we're hearing so much about uh, the challenge that China poses uh, in security intelligence terms um, today, more than we're hearing, uh, for example, in the early 1990s, uh, is because of that economic heft that they have, which is able to back back up resource um, uh, and and also uh, you know co-opt partners overseas and states that might be vulnerable for them. So I think that's the first point. On the purpose, and I think, you know, intrinsically all states, when they think about their intelligence operations, every, of course, operation has their own uh, individual purpose and intent, but at a, at a macro scale, I think it's about advancing your country's interests. So um, one of it, of course, is to understand, I think, um, you know, we see the offensive nature uh, often in Hollywood and TV of of intelligence operations and operatives, but often there's the the empathy side and understanding.
0: I love your phrase, empathy and understanding, to uh, illustrate uh, the goals of a spy. That sounds like something a church leader might encourage rather than a spy master. But look, we'll come back to both sides of this coin in a minute, and I want to look at China in more detail. But let's look at the CIA. What about the claims that the CIA uses its resources to foster uprising as, against regimes which America doesn't like? Is it plausible that the goal of the CIA is to bring down the Chinese Communist Party.
1: Well, I think Duncan. I mean, this is a narrative that's that's spun with some accuracy but historically. Obviously, I think this is gets pointed pointed to a lot during the Cold War period, uh, and in particular, of course, uh, some examples in the Americas, Central America, the Caribbean, um, and I think there was some um, some accuracy to some of these claims at that time. Um, I would, you know, sort of contest the idea that this is the fundamental goal or aim of the of the Central Intelligence Agency. There's many more functions. Um, I think in particular, for example, when 9-11 happened um, and counterterrorism and non-state actors became a big priority, um, there were different areas of focus. Um, So, uh, you know, it's less about always disrupting and and overthrowing and more about, as I said, gaining that access to intelligence that would provide um, policymakers with the sound choices to, to, to do what they do. Um, there was a time in the early days of, of intelligence, especially in the United States, uh, where what there was a more laissez-faire approach, I guess you would say, where there was a less oversight, but increasingly, at least in the American case, um, there's been more congressional oversight, there's been more um checks and balances uh, and i think this is a pretty interesting um sort of comparison to for example the chinese model and, and many other authoritarian models where they uh, yes at, at one point they do have a boss uh, but but those sort of checks and balances are much more secretive
0: oh absolutely there's no way the head of the chinese intelligence service is going to give public testimony in front of a committee of the Politburo, which will be uh, televised uh, on CCTV, is <laughs> that? No,
1: absolutely not. And I mean, so, so sort of getting to that point of, you know, what the US intelligence aims uh, regarding China, I mean, I, I personally think that the idea of, of regime change is not one that be, that's being discussed right now um, or being, uh, you know, trying to be pursued. I think right now that the most fundamental element is trying to secure a range of U.S. interests, whether they're commercial, whether they're security. Uh, I think there's a range of different actions that the United States continues to take.
0: Now, I wonder what makes a good spy. Clearly, you don't work as a spy, or I'm assuming you don't, otherwise you wouldn't be talking to me. But I'm just going to ask your judgment then, as a person who really studies this area. Let me ask you a question based on a recent incident. Do you think that the American spies, the members of the Central Intelligence Agency, realized that the Chinese foreign minister, Gang was going to get purged this summer. And do they have any explanation for what happened there?
1: So there's a lot of sort of personality traits that I'm sure that would would, would be good for the the field work. Um, uh, You know, I think one element that I think is really important is having history here as well is one understanding the trajectory, I mean, it's easy to get caught up, for example, in Chinese current operations under Xi Jinping, um, but I think it's important to connect this uh, to the way that Chinese intelligence has evolved over the years, particularly on this issue. So using this as a test case. Um, I think that I don't know that the U.S. intelligence community had a definitive, you know, opinion uh, or high confidence uh, that what was happening to the former Chinese foreign minister, that he would get sacked. And we still don't know uh, the details on on exactly why Uh, it does seem very suspicious. Maybe if it's not even the fact that the Chinese worried that he was too close to the Americans. Um, but also the fact that maybe he had too too many sympathies with the United States political system. Um, right now, this is a toxic sort of landscape in China for, for any sort of uh, vulnerabilities to the United States, and that could have easily been one of the reasons why he was removed. Um, so I have to think, uh, going back to your question, that the, that, you know, the CIA and other uh, members of the U.S. intelligence community at least had these suspicions.
0: Well, nothing came through to the media, did it? I mean, sometimes... The CIA and the Pentagon leaks information about uh, adversaries uh, to the press quite deliberately, actually. It gives briefings. But uh, there was nothing uh, from them about this uh, Chingang case that I saw.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a couple of reasons for that. I think you're speaking in particular with uh, Russia's war in Ukraine and more generally, uh, with Russian operations, there's a lot of leaking going on, um, you know, and, and I would say like public attribution. So what we've seen is an upfronting of intelligence that's sort of unprecedented. I mean, yeah. if you think about uh, ahead of the, uh, the war, the re-invasion in 2022 uh, of Ukraine, I mean, the Americans warning saying, hey, guys, we have this intelligence, red flashing light, um, Russia is coming into Ukraine. Um, and, you know, some even NATO allies in Europe didn't believe that. I think uh, the United States and its allies and its Five Eyes allies, including the UK, have very significant um, resources, uh, access sources uh, in Russia uh, and also in the former Soviet Union. Uh, So I think this is a legacy in in many ways of the Cold War, but also a somewhat easier target, especially after the Cold War, whereas I think on the Chinese side, it's not that we don't have sources or that we don't have ways uh, uh, to spy, um, but I think that uh, those vulnerabilities on the Chinese side are much, uh, much less. I think it's a much more opaque and harder target. Um, so that's reason number one. I think reason number two um, is that the risk is high. So I feel like at this point, <laughs> a lot of Western countries are looking at the Russia relationship as effectively a write off. Um, they're like, well, contain, um, you know, obviously support Ukrainian friends, but we're not looking for a long term engagement or recovery with Russia. You know, Russia has made its bed. And uh, we're trying to do everything we can to support our allies. I think China is a different uh, beast for them i think they they realize that it's the second largest economy soon probably be the first largest economy um, a much more muddied uh geopolitical landscape um so i think that it has to be much more judicious about what information it knows and what information it releases how that will affect the the current power balance so i feel like those factors are taken in even if they did have you know information for example on the former foreign minister or, or others
0: Now, this is quite a short podcast. We've only got 15 minutes. We've covered a lot of ground already. Uh, I do want to throw a big question at you before we finish, though. And it's the one that faces the US and its allies and the intelligence services, more pressing than anything else, actually, whether or not China's preparing an attack on Taiwan. How could they go about making such an appraisal?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of factors that would go into it. So, you know, one of them, of course, in a public nature, you see uh, statements, you look at party congresses, you look at speeches, but that tells a very little part of the story. I mean, China has been saying through several different um, you know, Xi Jinping obviously gets a lot of attention right now. And 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 in many reasons, there's a valid reason for that. I think he has that bellicose rhetoric, in particular on Taiwan, but I wouldn't take that too far. Um, I mean, we've seen since the days of Mao, uh, every Chinese chairman at the time has has said that Taiwan's an integral part of China, that we'll do everything we can. Uh, to reunify China. Um, So I don't think in many ways that public message, it's, yes, it's altered over time, but I don't think it's fundamentally changed. What I think they would have to see to start really making those appraisals, um, number one, I think would have to be internal uh, signal taps that would say whether it's something from, uh, from the military or something that China's communicating to its allies. Although I think on this front, I think China would be very, very quiet. Uh, not only internally but externally, uh, talking about any sort of preparations for conflict, but, the, the, but that would be one sort of key giveaway. So, the United if if uh, China starts referencing in, in detail about uh, the fact that it's starting to think about a move, and you know, for example, in its discussions with Russia and others, uh, how its allies could potentially help it. The the second big one would be any sorts of sense of movement um, from troops. I mean. There's all sorts of different contingencies that could take place over Taiwan. Um, we've heard maximal ones where we might see you know, an armada, for example, assembling uh, on the east coast of China to do a large amphibious assault on the island. Others are much more gray zone. Um, that would be harder to pick up. If we saw the former, uh, I think the signs are pretty uh, easy. You know, the United States and its allies with its uh, satellite technology would be able to pick up very quickly uh, these movements it wouldn't be a definitive, uh, you know, uh, decision to say, hey, China is is absolutely mobilizing because they could be mobilizing to, uh, uh, as an exercise or to, to show a bluff. But at the same point, uh, I think those are the signals that that the intelligence community will be looking for uh, to, to, to try to make those assessments.
0: Well, thank you, Jonathan, for sharing your insights into this fascinating subject. That was Jonathan Berkshire Miller, a senior fellow and the MacDonald Laurier Institute On the line from ottawa in canada this podcast is made by the soas china institute and you can learn more about our courses and research on our website soas.ac.uk but for now that's all from us here on the china in context podcast team